Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. Much of our work can be found at our website, globalsummitryproject.com. There you will also see uh, much of the research activity of the project work, including our three podcast series, uh, our videos, and our, the articles for the e-journal uh, Global Summitry. And in particular there on our e-journal, you will see our new special issue on strengthening global governance by strengthening the G20. So uh, it's my pleasure today to invite back into the studio our good friend Nick Bisley. This is um, uh, a podcast in the series Shaking the Global Order. In fact, it's series two episode 12 and what we're focusing on with Nick is the changing Australian political scene with a recent federal election and Australia's Indo-Pacific future as well. So Nick is the uh, Dean and head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences and also a professor of international relations at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. His research and teaching expertise is in Asia's international relations, great power politics, and Australian foreign and defense policy. Nick's a fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs and served as the editor-in-chief of the Australian Journal of International Affairs from 2013 to 2018. Nick is the author of many works on international relations. So um, it's a great pleasure to invite back into the studio, Nick Bisley. So it's a pleasure then to welcome again, uh, Nick Bisley into the virtual studio. Hello, Nick. Hi, Alan, great to be back. Yes. Okay, so after almost a decade of centre-right rule, uh, including the with the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his Liberal uh, Party, National Party coalition, you had recent elections and our good friends lost. And now we have a, a in Australia a Labour government under the leadership of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Uh, uh, you know, why this result, Nick? What what led to this change in government? Well, there's, there's a few different things, but I think most analysts seem to be landing on kind of three big um, drivers of, 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 of a vote. And probably worth saying at the top, it was very clearly an anti-government vote because one thing everyone could mm -hmm. agree on is that they wanted the Liberal government, Liberal National Coalition out. <laughs> but then, as I'll, I'll get to in a moment, the vote splintered in ways which we really, in, in ways we haven't seen before, at a scale in which we haven't seen before. But really, the, the three things that clearly were motivating people above all, um, the first was just uh, a sense of um, kind of electoral disgust with corruption and the lack of accountability in the government. It had a whole sling of pretty sleazy things from, you know, uh, really self-interested, or so sort of self-dealing to, um, you know, cronies and supporters. Mm -hmm. to a refusal to have an independent commission against corruption, uh, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, treating sexual assault allegations of ministers as if they were things that just, you know, should be swept under the rug and not to bother. So there was a kind of 
corruption competence question. The second one was around climate. Um, climate, I think we really we really tipped the scale on that. It's gone from being an issue that you know a lot of electors would say is important, but not a primary importance, to one when voters are really clearly adamant that the government needs to do something. And you saw a, a, a sort of plurality, not just a plurality, but a clear majority across the political spectrum that, that climate change needed to be taken much more seriously than the government had done. And of course, the Liberal National Coalition had been, you know, almost at the edge of climate change denial, not quite, but certainly some parts of the government were, were active denialists um, and certainly very slow walking on the whole thing. And we were way out of step with most industrial democracies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the third was a real dislike of Morrison himself, a real personalised. So oh, really? it was an interesting thing that the government chose to campaign in sort of high presidential style. And you see this a lot in Westminster systems, um, you know, focus everything around the office of the PM in the belief really, really seemed to be focused on the fact that he had pulled the election in 2019 out of the hat. Everyone thought they would lose it. And he had sort of, you know, at the time was seen to be this electoral genius who'd somehow... Pulled, yep. um, pulled them back from the brink. So they doubled down on him and discovered that he was <laughs> he was loathed to a very large degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's those three factors together. But the, but the probably the most interesting part of the story, electorally speaking, is that um, the the Labor government, which will form a majority government, just I think two seats. It looks looks like where they'll finish. Um, secured less than a third of the primary vote, uh, right. which is historically un- unprecedented. So the, the traditional view in Australia is you to form a majority government, you really needed a primary vote in the low 40s to get there or very, or very high 30s. So this and is you, ranked voting, right? So yeah, so, so we have a preferential ranks, preferential yeah. voting system. So you number all the candidates one to 10 or however many on the slip. Eventually. So the primary vote is the count of the number one. So who, yeah. who are you putting down first? Uh, yeah. And that has been something that, you know, you really needed to get that, High thirties, low four, ideally in the forties to to win. Um, and the Labor government got thirty. I think it's going to finish about thirty one, hmm. thirty one and a bit percent, which is just staggering. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, what you've got is a third for the for the uh, Liberal National Coalition, and of course they're two different parties. So the, the votes and the Nationals did okay. They're a country party. Uh, a third for Labor, a third for the coalition, and a third for other. And it was a combination of independents and a series of very and fine greens. focus. And yeah. then the Greens. And the Greens yeah. really broke through this year yep. for the first time. Yep. But, yeah, so so it's, it's you know, we're still digesting it, but it really looks like we've turned a corner in electoral politics in Australia. And the big... And was, the big there, was there okay. any uh, foreign policy issue at all? Now, generally in North America... Foreign policy does not rank particularly high when it comes to national elections, but uh, was that the case as well in this election? Yeah, it was actually. Surprisingly, um, you know, like in most democracies, foreign policy is not a vote winner. It's you yep. low down on people's electoral priorities. Um, yep. But the government went in and the belief really it hung its hat on three things. One was Morrison. Two was electoral competence. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, economic competence. And mm-hmm. the third was national security. Uh, really? And really, it really felt that national security was a winner. You could trust us in an insecure, geopolitically, you know, turbulent world, and you can't cut, and you can't trust those, you know, panda bear hugging communists. You know, okay. and they, they they almost went that far. You know, I think at one point, uh, 
Morrison or one of the senior liberals basically said, you know, you'll always choose China over Australia, accusing the opposition, and ran a very, you know, very, very much sought to present the, the electorate with a stark set of choices of we can defend you and they will betray you. Uh, and it interestingly went down terribly with Chinese uh, Australians of Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, up, up until now, the Chinese community in Australia has been um, not particularly unified electorally speaking. They vote, all the all the studies that have been done on it show that they vote basically in the same pattern as most Australians, you know. So wherever the election goes, they might be conservative, might be liberal, uh, Labor, however things will fly. But this time there was a clear shift away from the Liberal Party because of the language that had been used. Used. Um, and, and it was partly dog whistle politics, some of it copied out of the Trumpian playbook. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, in the middle of the campaign, uh, the announcement came out that the Solomon Islands had signed this security pact with the PRC. And so, you know, you had a government that said, we are the ones who can defend you against the Chinese. Uh, and lo and behold, they couldn't stop little old Solomon Islands signing a security pact with the PRC. Well, I want to get back to this issue of the Pacific yeah. Islands, but before we before we go there, I, I wondered, uh, is it possible that uh, Penny Wong, who's the new foreign minister and the new prime minister, that they'll make any headway in kind of <clears throat> riding the ship with China, which is the relationship between China and Australia has been really not in great shape, uh, you know, after the call for an independent uh, examination of the of COVID. And then the Chinese just seemingly went ballistic, uh, you know, imposing sanctions and saying some very aggressive things uh, about Australia. So is there any prospect of improving uh, the relationship? Yeah, de- definitely there's prospects. I mean, the tricky thing is that... Um, the way the previous government managed the relationship, which was very, you know, to, to do it all very much in public um, and to be very kind of what I described as hairy-chested about the approach to China, like, you know, we're out there, we're pointing fingers at the PRC and we're going way out in front so that we've got a, we have a worse political relationship with the PRC at the moment than Japan does. And Japan's got real, you know, proper historical territorial disputes. Territorial any, issues, yes. Yeah, I mean, they actually, you know, there's, there's real reasons for them to... To not get along, um, and the problem is that the things that we have done, so the you know the ban on Huawei and ZTE and the Telco <laughs> foreign interference legislation, a range of things, um, the PRC have said we're happy to get back to decent relationships. When do you undo those? And of course, no government can mm. can do that, mm-hmm. uh, and so it will be tricky to figure out how the steps can be taken. But I think what what the new election, the election of the new government does is provide a kind of circuit breaker. We've already mm-hmm. seen the, the, the relatively new ambassador in Canberra who's kind of reached out metaphorically um, to say, you know, we can have a decent relationship. Uh, and even uh, Lee Ka-chung has, has um, th- there was a press release that was put out by the uh, foreign ministry essentially doing a kind of metaphorical hand reach across. So, so there's prospect there. Managing the public optics will be tricky, um, but frankly, anything, any kind of interaction would be a step in the right, step, step, would be an improvement because literally at the moment we, we have diplomatic relations, but only kind of formally. The, there, is, mm-hmm. there is zero interaction between okay. anyone from senior on down. Um, mm. And this is where, you know, and one of the, Kind of opportunities coming up is because that complexity around the optics and how do you who goes to whom and how do you 
how do you do pre-negotiations, that sort of thing, that I think there's a really good set of opportunities coming up with the multilateral forum. The multilateral institutions, right? Indonesia is running the G20. You've got Thailand running uh, APEC this year. And uh, you've got uh, the ASEAN Plus summits, the series of summits. So I would assume Australia, if it wanted to, and if China wanted to, you could at a fairly low, you know, under the radar kind of phenomenon, try to work out some answers, do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly what they're going to be doing is, is doing a lot of quiet corridor diplomacy to rebuild re- rebuild connections at the sort of mid-level senior officials level. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, I would hope that there would be some quiet ministerial chats and ideally things that we don't, you and I don't hear about uh, right. unless, you know, I mean, and even with our, you know, you and I have wonderfully strong connections in all the corridors of power. Um, but even, even in spite of that, they keep it, they keep it quiet from even you and me. I think that would be really <laughs> helpful because it, it's just been the extent to which this thing's been played out in public for reasons that are largely to do with domestic electoral politics in Australia. Um, it's not been helpful to anyone, you know, because it's made the management of a, relationship which is complex so you know we have a good economic sure. relationship but very fraught political and security concerns mm-hmm. but we can't we should be able to manage those differences um mm-hmm. and the previous government proved to be completely un i don't think un, unable but they chose just to say we don't want to do any of that we want to mm. we want this to be very black and white and we yep. we don't care um mm-hmm. and interestingly you know a lot of domestic economic interests were harmed i mean the aggregate effect of the sanctions has been not too bad on australian trade but you talk to individual business owners who are exporters of wine to china or crayfish right. lobsters they've gone broke you know these people really have, yeah you know there's yeah. i think the, i think the barley um, barley growers calculate they're probably, you know, the $600 million in the hole per, per annum, which, you know, and that's a tight margin business. You know, this, this is not a business. This is not Apple with 30% profit margins. You know, this is, so individual barley farmers are doing it really tough. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it, it really does need to improve. Okay. Um, as you know, um, uh, the Biden administration uh, kind of partly announced its Indo-Pacific strategy in the winter months here. Uh, and um, the it seems as if the, uh, the U.S. side, the Biden side, you know, and it's been expressed several times now, most recently by uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, that uh, the the administration hopes that they can shape the strategic environment um, in uh, the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, in the face of a rising China, um, that, that, you know, they work with the allies, respond more effectively to Chinese maritime aggression, obviously the South China Sea stuff, the East China Sea stuff, and more generally uh, deal with Chinese uh, pressure. And obviously Australia is one interesting example of that. Is, is this how, you know, is this kind of broad strategic thrust you know, compatible with where Australia is on, on kind of the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think the, the Australian policy folk, and particularly the the civil, the, the public service, um, yeah, are very much in line with that broad view. So that's a, you know, a, a, a yeah, the American strategy is essentially we want to defend and protect the status quo in which America and its sort of values and interests are the sort of preeminent driving force, but done very collaboratively. You know, whereas if it's not as it's a bit more sophisticated than just a, you know 
put a great big wall between China mm-hmm. and everyone else mm-hmm. um, and to have a range of different mechanisms and to work, and to recognise the fact that American power, both military and, and economic power, to is ultimately limited in terms of trying to achieve this aim. You know, I think the previous administration in Washington sort of thought that America could flex its muscles enough and, and the Chinese would just recoil from a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, Reaganite peace through strength sort of, you know, which, which was which was always wrong, and, which was wrong in the 1980s and is even was even wronger um, in the face of China. So the Biden people, I think, are much more preg- you know, plugged into reality. Uh, and certainly the view in, in Australia is very much that the status quo should be de- should be protected and defended. Okay. Um, liberalism in, is is in serious challenge in many corners of the world, particularly in the region, both economic mm-hmm. and political. Uh, and we need to do these things together. So I think we're we're kind of marching in one uh, one one direction with the Americans in that regard. I think that the problem that Australia and I think a lot of other partners have is that. Much of this sounds good, yes. But when you sort of push it and go, "What does this actually entail?" Mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is this? Uh, what is this? Gets a little thin. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, I, the wonderfully named IPEF. IPEF, uh, yes. Yeah, there's a case in point where here's a bunch of quite you know reasonable sounding things that are certainly very. I think everyone, no one would dispute that they're a good idea and range of things to do. But a what is it? What do they actually mean specifically? What exactly will happen? Right. Right. B, how are you going to do it? Like what? Because as, as you know, you know the how you do economic cooperation. What exactly the rules are? What are the mechanisms? Really determines how beneficial or or not those sort of Absolutely. agreements are. Mm-hmm. And the absence of trade um, and and significant trade agreements, which is notwithstanding the benefits of looking at you know standards around digital payments and um, mm-hmm. decarbonisation, these are all good things. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of economic integration and, and under providing an economic ballast to American uh, primacy and seeing off the China challenge, trade is the, the number one means you're going to do that for and of course, trade-dependent economies. It's often they've table. largely avoided that. So, so let, two aspects here, and I want to cover both before we we uh, finish up. One, you mentioned it. But, uh, you know, how concerned is Australia about Chinese efforts on the security and development side with respect to the Pacific Island countries? Is, is that a, you know, a deep concern on the part of the Australian government? I think it varies a little bit depending on <clears throat> who you ask. So if you talk to the sort of the military hawk types, yes, they, they think the world is coming to an end, or at least the way, they, the way it's been articulated, that it, you know, Chinese empire building and, mm. um, and I mean, literally some of the the, more, the louder voices on that end of the spectrum have said, it's like the Japanese in 1941. You know, they want to build bases to, you know, to interdict shipping and to, you know, it's imperial, it's the, the whole gamut, I mean, which is pretty crazy. Um, at the other end, you know, you've got, at the, the more realistic end, you've got, yes, this is, this is a concern and it's a concern for a couple of reasons. Probably the most sharp one is, the way in which not so much that that the countries of the South Pacific will become parts of the Chinese tributary system or just part of China's orbit, mm-hmm. but that China will export a kind of authoritarianism and mm-hmm. 
problems with governance, human rights and the like that's that's really bad for those countries. So I think mm-hmm. what where Australia has really dropped the ball with the South Pacific has been a tendency to view it very paternalistically, so not, mm-hmm. not see the South Pacific nations as equals, to say here's what we know what you need and to, to say that, but also to have a very uneven and inconsistent approach that's often prompted primarily by external factors like either there's an a, 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 a internal crisis like a coup in Fiji or whatever it is, or the Chinese come knocking on the door and we go, oh, man, this is terrible. This is supposed to be our patch and we've got to do something. And, you know, I, th- I think certainly the vast majority of um, the political elites in most of these countries are very uneasy about the, the ch- Chinese influence. I mean, there's some corrupt people who are taking money, but it's sure. true, true in all countries, right? That's, that's no, no um, exclusive domain of, of the South Pacific. Um, but feel that on a lot of it, in a lot of areas, China comes in um, and listens and says, what do you need? Um, and we can provide that. Yeah, there's some quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Whereas the sort of the, the the sort of legacy of colonialism in general and a paternalistic, very instrumental approach in particular has led those countries to go, well, you know, we we see a Chinese partnership as getting more of what we think we need than dealing with you guys. And where to sort of go back to, to Penny Wong, I mean, to, it's very early days, but to give her and her team credit, you know, they went straight up to the quad meet, meeting in Tokyo within, you know, 30 hours of winning after a six-week six grueling campaign, which Penny played a significant part of because she's a, you know, she's a senior figure and well, very, very well regarded domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, goes up to Tokyo, comes back, and then immediately goes to the Solomons. Sorry, goes to Fiji's, come back, and then is now, I think, right, still is in uh, Samoa and Tonga um, and, and basically saying, you know, we're listening, we're here, we're resetting, uh, and I do think it's been that has been very important to uh, a recent to basically turning down of the offer of a security pact that the Chinese um, foreign policy supremo Wang Yi did his little Pacific tour. Yes, uh, and, and the, the view the view in the South Pacific seems to be yeah, not not now. And I think had the Morrison government won, we might have had a different outcome. A different well, outcome. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to to raise with you, because you've identified it, uh, the two aspects which seem to have an immediate impact on Australian uh, foreign policy. One, uh, the quad, that is the um, quadrilateral security dialogue, U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. And, you know, know, I guess the big question is, how does Australia view this, particularly in the light of what has to be seen as somewhat ambivalent views of India's participation. And, and I know that Australia, for instance, just recently um, signed up to a uh, interim bilateral trade deal with, uh, with the Indians called the Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement. But I mean, you know, is Australia, you know, kind of comfortable with, you know, where the Indians sit, um, both in the context of the Quad, but more, more generally on the Indo-Pacific? Um, I, I think the, the, the view in Canberra about India, both in general and in, in relation to the quad in particular, is one of um, what, seeing what you want to see in oh. India. <laughs> so they will go, well, you know, they don't like China. They're a democracy. We've got a lot of shared legacy. You know, they mm-hmm. tend to overlook the fact that, they were on the wrong side of colonialism. They were part of the empire. Like, yeah, mm, different 
you know, different imperial experience from white settler colonial. Um, and but but more recently it's really focused on they they dislike China, they want a, a rules-based order, so you know, we can we can get along and we can figure okay. out and this is a good thing. Okay. Um, and if as I regularly do sort of point out to my colleagues in Canberra to say, yeah, but in the long run, they really don't want what we want. You know, mm. we, we want a region that's not just rules-based order in a neutral sense, but a Western liberal sense where Western mm-hmm. powers remain preeminent. And in mm-hmm. particular, the US is the predominant power. Um, and we want that more than a multilateral system in which India and China are one amongst a number of kind of co-equal, if you like, great powers. Uh, and they go, yeah, no, no, things have changed. Things have changed in India. And I was like, I, you know, I really don't think they have, particularly under, particularly under Modi. I mean, where he's taking the country a long way from the democratic kind of right. idea. So I, there is, um, and, and, you know, to be fair, there's some recognition of that within parts of Canberra, but there's also a real like, okay, right now we need to be doing something. Uh, and that sense that, you know, multilateral cooperation, you know, the kinds of things we were talking about earlier in relation to the Indo-Pacific strategy mm-hmm. coming from the US, you know, that you need to do things collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Yet Australia's like, yep, yeah, we're on board for that. We want to do it. We're a small part, really, even at our biggest, best, you know, we're a, a bit part player in all of this and we need others to come along for the for the ride. And India is a clearly significant part of that. Uh, and if that this is a mechanism that can advance that that's a good thing. And then probably below the surface with the, with Australia is also if, if the quad can be something that can help push the bilateral relationship along with India, that's mm. also a good thing because that okay. it's a relationship that has, um, is really patchy, partly because of that colonial legacy. Um, yes. The Australian elites up until pretty recently tended to just look down their nose almost literally at, at India. Uh, but also it's, it's been very sporadic. Um, it goes through highs where, you know, particularly if there's a good relationship at the top end of government. So famously, Bob Hawke and Rajiv Gandhi got along and they thought, oh, this is the next generation of Australia-India relations. And then it ended away. Abbott and Modi, the same thing in 2014. Mm-hmm. And part of it's a bandwidth issue in, in Canberra. And part of it's also the fact that Australia is much less important to India than India is to Australia. So managing that kind of asymmetry has proven to be tricky. So the quad... For Australia, the Quad can help sort of provide some some momentum and some capacity to push that along also helps. But there is that fundamental issue, though, that to, to get back to the heart of the matter, where Australia and India's interests at the moment, if you just quickly glance at them, look like they're nicely aligned. But mm-hmm. if you take a closer look, I think they're much less well aligned than people think. And that's okay. both at the economic level as well as the strategic, strategic level. level. Okay. And speaking, it's kind of the last piece of this, um, uh, AUKUS, I mean, that clearly on the strategic side, um, is this, you know, from Australia's point of view, just a way to, you know, kind of uh, obtain, um, you know, kind of um, uh, nuclear technology and, and or over a long period of time, of course, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear submarines, or is there a conception out of the Canberra that there's something bigger about AUKUS, which is Australia, the UK, and the United States? It's a good question, particularly in the light of the uh, election result, because it was very much the thing that Morrison felt was his greatest legacy. Oh, really? Okay. Thought, yeah, the AUKUS mm-hmm. here was this deal. Um, and in classic, I mean, if it's it, it, classic Morrison, it remains to this day 
a press release. You know, it's, it's it's an announcement. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more going on under the surface and and the like, but it's still, it's been nearly nine months. You know, that that we still haven't moved anything along, which I think mm-hmm. is not an especially good sign. But um, you know, there's there's reasons. There's a war in Ukraine. There's you know, there are big things going on in the globe, and it's a long term proposition. But Australia does see it as more than just um, subs. But I think it's probably less than a big strategic balancing coalition. So I think okay. it's, I think what what Australia really sees um, at this the, the benefits of this thing more broadly is in te- tech sharing, understood kind of widely. So around, you know, AI, quantum computing, intelligence, um, nuclear subs, nuclear engineering, all those sort of things. That it's it's about the subs. It's about tech sharing, but it's not. It's difficult to see it broadening out into something substantive in terms of a strategic balancing coalition or anything along those lines. And I, th- I think, um, you know, the fact that it's so Anglophone and, the, you know. It does look a little white. It's, <laughs> I do find a you know, point on it. stale all over. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, it, and the fact that it's having difficulty doing its core business is also probably not especially promising signs so you know i, th- I think but the labor government made very clear for domestic electoral reasons as much as anything else that it was going to stick to AUKUS, stick to the big foreign policy priorities of the current government mm-hmm. um, and i think you'll see that i think miles the new defense minister came out and said very quickly you know submarines are really important to our future we're 100 into all of this whether the subs will ever arrive god knows um but I wouldn't be surprised if you saw them carefully try to broaden it out, take dial down the anglophone, you know, we don't need mm-hmm. interpreters here, isn't this great, um, side of the whole thing and look to broaden its base to some degree, whether that means bringing the Japanese and the Indonesians and others in because, of, you know, if, if it is about tech sharing, if you've got a certain level of partnership, then mm-hmm. that's all good. But but it is a curious one and, and um very early days, I think people have tended to to either critique the hell out of it or or, or wildly overstate its benefits, and it's it, it it remains a kind of you know very much a work in progress. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Nick, for your taking the time to join us and give us some insights into uh, Australia's uh, activity uh, in the Indo-Pacific and and in some of the strategic and economic uh, dimensions. I really appreciate it. And thank you very much for joining with us. Thanks, Alan. And I really enjoy the ability to um, dip out of my day job, which is dealing mostly with spreadsheets and HR forms. So it's... uh... (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the things life is not always the funnest one. So this is it's been a real pleasure. <laughs>